any moment, we're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that place. We'll be turning to it and reading from that chapter in a little bit. But before we actually turn to the Word of God and open up the Word, let's now pray for the help of God upon us as we preach and as we hear. Holy Father, we do pray, even as we have just prayed, that you would direct us in the way, particularly that you would direct us by your word. We pray even now that we would teach all that is in the word concerning these things, and that we would not teach that which is not in your word concerning these matters of eldership and those that would be pastors in this place. Help us, Lord, to have pastors who are men after your own heart, men that will be used of you mightily in our hearts and the hearts of many for years to come. Bless us, we do pray, with such gifts we do plead. Direct us, we pray, by the Spirit even now, through the Word of God, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There was a very strange sign on the desk of a Pentagon official. In bold capital letters, this sign read, The secrecy of my job does not permit me to know what I am doing. And that reminds me of a similar sign that could be placed on many a young pastor's desk. The sacredness of my job does not permit me to know what I am doing. Now, tragically, there are many pastors that really don't have a biblical understanding of what they're supposed to be doing. And it is equally pernicious when a congregation doesn't know what their pastor is supposed to be doing. And all too often, churches have unbiblical ideas of what they should expect from a pastor. And so when a man doesn't measure up to these unbiblical expectations, tension begins to mount up between him and the congregation, and it's not long before he is driven out from ministering in that congregation. As we wait on God for direction concerning another pastor, it's important, therefore, that we do so with the guidance of the qualifications that are listed in Scripture for the eldership. They're set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and we're going to be looking at that in a few sermons from now. And it's also important that we understand what the Bible tells us about the nature of the office. And that's where we begin. We began with it in our last sermon. And as we stressed in our opening message in this series two weeks ago, if you were in a personnel department and you were responsibility to hire somebody, you would have to know the nature of that job for which you are hiring that person. And likewise, in the church, it is exceedingly important that we know what we are looking for. And so before we come to those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we are devoting our first three or four studies to a description of the office of elder. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we find no formal definition of the office of elder, and there's not a formal description either. But instead, we have various word pictures which describe the relationship between elders and the people that they minister to. And we have called out of Scripture eight such word pictures, and they repeatedly portray the two functions that come out as their duties. They are called upon to rule in the church, and they are also called upon to teach. And in our first study, we featured two of these word pictures. 
And both of these two are listed at the top of the outlines that have been provided there. Uh, hopefully you picked them up. They were on the table, I hope, in the back. And we noted, first of all, two weeks ago, that there is in the eldership a relationship between elders and a clan or a town. The term elder, it was the most common word used in Scripture to, to give a description of this office. It means simply an older person, a more mature person. And yet it's not just somebody that's got gray hair, but it's somebody that has spiritual maturity. This is the particular issue at stake. Timothy was a young man, and yet he was spiritually mature. And we began with noting that there are about 120 references in the Old Testament to the elders of the Old Testament. And again and again, they had these two functions of ruling and teachings. And later on, especially as they did so, it was in the synagogue, and this prepared the way for the New Testament church. And then the second picture that we noted last week was the picture of overseers over a workforce. And this is the picture that's conveyed by the Greek word episkopos, the word that's often translated bishop. The Greek word episkopos, from that we have episcopal, you know, the episcopal churches, and they have separate bishops that are over pastors, but we believe that they are interchangeable. God uses the words interchangeably in the New Testament. And the verb form for, for episkopos or bishop or overseer, it, it, it is to look upon, to consider, to inspect, to examine, to investigate. That's the meaning of the word. It conveys the idea that pastors, they're always looking out for the spiritual well-being of their people. And they use this word of overseers to inspect cities, to help see how they're doing, to inspect other things. They were set over a group of, of various sorts to inspect and to oversee what is going on. And the picture that's conveyed by this word, therefore, is it, it implies that elders to have to keep their eyes wide open. They need to watch out for the spiritual well-being of those under their charge. But now we come this afternoon to a third and a fourth, and optimistically I was thinking about a fifth, but you know how that goes in my sermons. And interestingly, I planned this third point for the, the climax of last week, and it was going to be the climax of this week, but we're going to have to get to the issue of stewards uh, perhaps in the next sermon. But the thing that I want you to notice with me in the next place is that the scriptures give this comparison also they are to be like governors over a province. And here I want you to, if you haven't turned there already, to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And in three places in this chapter, the writer uses the same word to refer to the pastors of God's people. And the Greek word that is used is egumenon. And in each of these places, in the 1901 version of the American Standard, also in the King James, in the New King James, they translate this word along with the pronoun that's used, those who rule over you. That's how it's translated. And the English Standard Version, it translates the word as your leaders. And New American, those who led you or lead you. Um, but the, the older translations, they use this translation, those who rule over you. Notice uh, verse 7. I'm reading here from the New King James. Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then in verse 17, 
Obey those, and here's the word again, who rule over you. And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. And let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then at the end of the letter, verse 24, greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Now, I believe in the context of these three verses that the translation, the older translation, those who rule over you represent the original better in this particular context. But neither rendering is fully uh, adequate. That's often the case when you translate from one language into another. The Greek word that's translated, those who rule over you, and in these modern translations, those who are your leaders, it was commonly used in the context of civil government. And the picture that is conveyed is not the picture of supreme authority. It's not somebody that's a Caesar. It's never used of a king. Somebody that can, in human terms, rule arbitrarily. Somebody who has the last word, who can't be challenged. Uh, that's not the word that is used in this place. But rather, in biblical times, the word was commonly used to refer to those who had a th inferior authority, especially was used in the context of governors or procurators in the Roman Empire over a province. And in biblical times, governors were subject to the higher authority of Caesar. They must see to it that the laws and the edicts of the emperor were carried out. And when these edicts were disobeyed, appropriate consequences must follow. We have this word, for instance, in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. I'll just quote it here. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to kings as supreme, and here's the word, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So you have the kings that are supreme, the emperor, but then you have these inferior rulers, governors, and the word is used, translated there as governors. You have a specific example in the case of Pilate in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 2. And when they had bound him, that is when they had bound Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. There's the noun form of this word. And in many other places in the Gospels, the Gospel writers use this same term calling Pilate a governor some six or seven times in the New Testament. And Pilate, he was an inferior magistrate. He had authority, he had very real authority. He could pass uh, the death sentence on somebody. But in all of his rule, he was constantly accountable to Caesar. He was to rule over the Jews and Palestine in Caesar's name. He must report to Caesar for what's going on. He doesn't have the authority to make independent edicts over that province. He mustn't govern according to his own wishes, but according to Caesar's wishes and Caesar's law. And this is why, remember, Pilate felt very threatened when at Jesus' trial, the Jews cried out and they said, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And this was very troublesome to Pilate because he doesn't want to get booted, you see, from his office. He wants to please Caesar. So they use this argument, these Jews do, with Pilate. And repeatedly, in the, in the book of Acts, the same word is used for other governors, uh, I think about five times for Felix 
and it's used on one occasion for Festus, the governor, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 30. And then again, just to see how this word develops again in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 10, we have the word that's used in Hebrews 13, translated governor. Stephen, in his speech, he recites the history of Israel and how they always were rebelling. And he speaks at one point in his, in his sermon of Pharaoh, who made Joseph governor over Egypt and all his house. There's the same word. He became the governor over Egypt. Joseph had tremendous authority. Only Pharaoh's authority was greater than Joseph's authority throughout Egypt. But again, Joseph's authority, it was not absolute. He was always accountable to Pharaoh. So he was under authority, and yet he acted with authority. You see, Joseph, he doesn't say, well, hey, fellas, I've got a few ideas, and I'd kind of like you to think about them, and maybe if you think that they're a good idea, we can make a referendum and vote on it and, and figure this, this out. That's not the way he ruled, you see. He, he, he had authority, and he ruled in, in a way that would bring glory and honor to the Pharaoh and for the good of the people. In Genesis 41, verses 40 and 44, Pharaoh says to him, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled, there's the word, according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So Joseph was an inferior magistrate, and yet he had very great power in Egypt. Now, we must remember in this context that the church of Jesus Christ is a theocracy. It is not a democracy. Again and again in the New Testament, the words church and kingdoms are used in tandem. I won't say that they're exact synonyms of one another, but there's a direct connection between these two concepts. The church is a kingdom that is ruled by Jesus Christ as king. And what does Christ do and how does he rule in his kingdom? He sends governors into his provinces. They have authority, but it's derived authority. It's not an independent authority. Pastors do not have the authority to just do what they ever want to in the church. In everything that they do, whatever is done, it has to be done according to the orders that they got from on high. They're orders of the king, even the king Jesus. And he given those orders in his word. And so in this way, while pastors have been entrusted with authority, they're always under authority. They are governors that must speak and act in Christ's name and in accord with Christ's word. And even though they have been recognized by the common consent of the people, they don't derive their authority from the people. It's very different, you see, from a democracy where all the people that are elected, they're accountable, you see, to their voters. And this is not the case in the New Testament. We derive our authority from the word of God and from the king who has, has deputized us, so to speak, and given us directives in his word. So we don't get our authority to rule from the congregation any more than we get our authority to teach and preach from the congregation. Both these responsibilities, teaching and preaching on one hand and ruling, they come as delegated authority from the Lord. Now coming back to Hebrews 13, we notice several instructions regarding the specific way that they are to govern. And we've set these things out in four points, four subpoints in your outlines. The first thing I want you to notice with me is that they are answerable to the king. 
Let's read again what we read in verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to give some examples of the way either pastors on their, on their end of the scale or the people can violate this principle, this principle that they are to the ones that give an account. They're answerable to the king. So think about how this could be violated in the church. And to whom is it that they has to have to give an account? Well, they give the account to the king of kings. They give account to the Lord of lords. Their governor is in his majesty's service. They're accountable to the king for the conditions of their province. And hence, a weighty responsibility rests upon them. The king wants to know what they're doing. He wants to know what's going on in the province that's been assigned to them. The Lord our king, he looks on to see if they're doing things in accord with his commands and with his word. Is everything being done in conformity to the directions of Scripture? Has there been a rebellion in this this province? Has there been an attempt at a coup? Have the pastors, on the other hand, in obedience to the king, been willing to take a courageous stand, even when the people oppose them, when they've been putting pressure on them to bend their will to the will of the people rather than the will of the king? And what we read here in Hebrews 13, verse 17, strongly implies If pastors are answerable to the king, ultimately they're not answerable to the people. Now we want to interact with the people, get your input. Obviously that's very much in in terms of wise leadership. But the account that's being given here in Hebrews 13, 17, it's not we have to give an account to the people. The account is very clearly set forth as an account that must be given to God, not men. In his commentary on 1 Peter It's one of the best commentaries on that book. I think Pastor Hill would agree. Uh, John Brown, he writes, Christian elders, as well as those under their care, are to remember that they are rulers under Christ, that they must take their orders from him, that they are accountable to him, that the sheep are not to dictate to the shepherds nor the children to the tutors and governors. If Christian elders seek to please even the members of the church in any other way, then by pleasing them for their good, for edification, by declaring and executing the laws of Christ, they will prove that they are not the servants of Christ, but the servants of men. The authority of Christian elders, though subordinate and deputed, is real authority, so that in the right discharge of their official duties, he that despises them despises not man, but God. He that contemns the humblest subordinate magistrate, regularly appointed and acting within the limits of his delegated authority, is guilty of disobedience to the supreme power. You remember how Jesus sent out his apostles, his disciples, and he said, the way they treat you is the way they treat me. It's you are, I'm represented through you. And so they reject you, they're rejecting me. And in many ways, this is the case with elders and of course it doesn't mean that every time they sin and they're rejected for that reason that uh, they're rejecting Christ but the main point is this is that when they are using and implementing God's commandments and God's directives this authority is very real and it is to be embraced now having given you that 
explanation of this first principle, they're accountable to God. Can you think of examples where either pastors violate this or the people violate this principle? Yes, John. Then there's this mindset that the pastor is this kind of guy, guy that preaches. He's just one of the people. He goes up there and preaches, and then when he steps down, he's just one of us. And we have boards in the church that actually rule and govern and have the authority. The pastor can't do anything and he has to submit to mm-hmm. Okay, so sometimes there's boards in the church that they do the ruling. Some churches there's deacons that do the rule. They kind of become quasi-elders in that, in that role. And this is not the order that God has set up in the church. Yes, Paul. So when somebody's in the congregation and they're they're just going through the motions of, of church work or the pastors on the other hand, when they're just when they're when they're just, just up there tiresomely, just kind of getting their paycheck and doing the bare minimum and and just kind of uh, they're not really watching out for the souls of, of their charge. They don't have an affection for the sheep. Is that what you're I think then that that falls short of this because you know they have they have to give an account. You know, that's a serious business, giving account to God. Yes, Leo. Yeah, when a pastor is just viewed as an employee. Okay. And who's the boss? Yeah. Okay. Well, my boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who our boss is. All of us, he's our, all of our boss, right? Uh, what is it, that bumper sticker, my boss is a carpenter? I can't remember how, how it's stated. But at that, so there is a principle in which all of God's people have that, that function. But in the church especially, there is this responsibility of pastors and the people both to recognize that we're not to just make it up as we go, just to have church life the way we think it will work, work in, our, in our day and age. Uh, yes, yes, uh, Chris. Okay. Okay. So we're going to see, and we're going to emphasize, but in the whole issue of teaching, the teaching and, and ruling they go together. The way pastors rule in the church is by the word of God. They teach God's word. That's the way in which it's implemented. And if that's all twisted to just wanting to make people happy, uh, tickling their ears is, you know, and that's not a phrase you invented. It's right there in the Bible. Um, pleasing people and what they want to hear. Uh, and that, that varies from age to age. It, uh, Spurgeon, in his day, in, back in the, in the 1800s, we think of him as a flowery preacher, but he was very plain-spoken. They, they despised him, many of the people, because he wasn't oratorical enough. He didn't tickle their ears in that sense to please people with his high, high-spun language, but people can do just the opposite. You know, they, can, they can tickle the ears of people by just telling interesting stories that have nothing to do with the Bible. They can, uh, yeah, there's a whole, whole number of ways in which that could be done. Yes. Yes, Bob. From a congregation's perspective, too, in that sense, in the worst sense, like any authority figure, they submit to them, 
take the charges that you look at it, they come down with after maybe some arguments presented and you don't you don't like it. The idea is that we're gonna say, okay, they're the pastors, we commit them to God and we pray for them, and then but we better not buck them because that will not be good for our souls. Good exegesis of the text. Yes, Phil. What the orders are? Yes. get ahead of me in my sermon here. <laughs> but that's a very real issue. That, that uh, when pastors have to meet unbiblical expectations or else they're kicked out, it puts a lot of tension there between them and the people. And uh, there needs to be an understanding of what those responsibilities are. Anything else anybody want to add? Yes, John. From the other Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. They can the lording over the flock can happen in many different ways. One is adding to God's word in terms of the duties that they're imposed upon God's people. That can be a, just the way in which pastors. Uh, one pastor in the history of our movement that had to be dealt with, he was putting a wedge between husbands and wives. And it was in a way, he was, he was intruding on the family order that was there in such a way that was unbiblical. Yes, William. Chance he's taking me and picking me up every Sunday to get here. Yeah. I didn't plan for none of this. I didn't dream for none of this. I know God put him in my life for a purpose. So 
for those reasons, okay, I gotta submit to you because I'm not getting in trouble with that yeah. anymore. I'm tired of this mess. You know? God is. God is. Glory for Him and everybody else that He's putting in my path because there's a purpose for my life. So when He gave account, I'm watching out for my soul. Yeah. So I'm like giving Him group hugs and everything yeah. else because God has made a great man of God and He serves the church very well. I think it's I think it's a good principle there. You know, like a a wife might say, "Well, I think I married the wrong guy," so I don't think I'm going to submit to him. And that's not biblical thinking, you know, because God sovereignly put those two together, and He's given orders in the, in the order of the, of the household. And, and in the same way, I think it's the church. God providentially leads us into the fellowship and the place where He's put us, and the people that He uh, that He points to be. Uh, our rulers, our, our teachers. Well, I want to move on here so we can get eventually to our, our second main heading because they're related. As we unpack this whole thing about the elders being like governors, a second lesson that comes out of Hebrews 13 about the rule of elders is that, they're, that uh, their governing is never to be divorced from their teaching. And this is put together in verse 7. Remember those rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. You see those two things are put together. In this case it's remembering those who in the past had ruling over them and it's connected and how did they rule? It's They did this by speaking the very word of God. The textbook of elders is the word of God. Their teaching tools are speaking the word and living out the word. And everything we do in the church is to be word-oriented. Our worship, we sing the word. We pray the word. We hear the word. The word is something that permeates what we do as a congregation. And so it is with elders that are doing so biblically. They're governing in the church through the use of God's word. Christ has delegated certain authority to elders, but not that they might be unreasonable tyrants. Just saying... To anybody that asks them a question, well, this is the way things are done around here. Just take it or leave it. If you don't like it, just go. Well, that's not a very biblical way of of giving leadership in the church. They're to take care that the king's subjects, they understand the word, that it's coming from the king. And if the word of God calls us to certain reforms in a congregation, in a church, then this reformation needs to take place in connection with the word. You don't just as pastors say, well, we got to do this, and so next week it's going to be this way, and just, just trust me, you know, just obey me, this is what we do. No, he explains from the word of God why it is that such and such a change needs to be made. And if the elders are constrained to lead the congregation in some major new endeavor, some new outreach, this needs to be done in connection with teaching from the word of God. When we had a building program, when we anticipated a great expense in changing the, uh, the structure of this building and so on, we had a series of sermons years ago about such an issue. If we were to send out a missionary, that would be something that would be suitable for us to go to how does, what does God say about missionaries? What does he think about how they should be sent out? Uh, if we embark on some kind of ministry of mercy, we preached a series of sermons addressing ministries of mercy. And if we had some particular stewardship in that regard, then it ought to be done in connection with opening up the scriptures. So their governing is never divorced from their teaching. 
And a third principle is that they must govern with the common welfare of the people in view. In verse 17, we read at the beginning, Obey those who rule over you, for they watch for your souls. Now, part of good government is providing for the common defense. But elders must go further than this. They don't just watch for things that have come from the outside and attack the church. They must not only be concerned to provide in that sense for the common defense, but also to watch for the souls. How are they doing, each one of them? They will give an account for each one, and they therefore need to watch over the souls of each one. And their watch, of course, is not to be intrusive. Uh, we don't wiretap your houses. We don't do, as one person was afraid that they heard that, that we look in people's cupboards. We don't, we don't do those kinds of things. That's, not, that, that's an abuse of, of the authority that God has given to God's people. But rather, we watch the souls of each one of you and the church corporately that, they might, that each one of you might make it to heaven in the end and that you might not be lost that you might not, that you might, and that we might not have to give an account in the last day with grief for your soul, having then heard what you did with what we sought to do in your heart and your life. But then a fourth principle I need to underscore is that they must govern with the atmosphere of warmth and kindness. And it's interesting how this letter closes. We read in verse 24, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Greet them, welcome them, express your good wishes to them, he says. Members need to know that their pastors have their good at heart, and they are approachable. You can greet them, you can talk to them. They're not some kind of, you know, you've seen these Puritan, some of these uh, pulpits that are way up near the sky as if they're, they're the holy ones, almost like angels from above. They need to be approachable. They need not to be so elevated that they're, distant from the people among whom they labor. There's to be warmth and love that attends their rule. They're not to be aloof, distant, frightening, intimidating, pompous. Well, this is the kind of man that you need to look for and pray for. You need to, as we think about these four principles, you need to look for one that you're confident he will not rule according to his own whims, but rather according to the will of Christ. We need to pray for a man that understands the difference between the mind of Christ and his own preferences. We need to pray for one that will patiently lead the congregation by showing the people the will of the Christ and what God's word says. One that doesn't rule with his own interests, but rather the interests of the people in view. He's not just ruling because this will make more money or this will bring me more honor and the like. He doesn't rule as one that sees everybody in the congregation in an adversarial way. Well, it's the people that are for me and the people that are against me. And we develop this kind of adversarial type of relationship in the church. We need to pray for somebody that doesn't categorize by everybody as to whether or not they're fully on board with everything they say and everything that they do. And if they're not, they're somehow enemies of the church. Instead of overriding the concern of the God, the overriding concern of the godly pastor, you see, is the well-being of those for whom he must give an account. And for this reason, such a man has a genuine affection for everyone under his care. And so these are some of the features of a godly ruler in the church. And of course, no elder perfectly matches up to everything that we've preached, but this is the goal. This is what we want. 
But now I want to come to our fourth main heading, the fourth main picture, and that is that they are as teachers with a group of learners. And here, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We read in verse 11, And he himself, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And at the end of that list is pastors and teachers, but they're not two different people. They're, we could use a hyphen to give the idea they're pastor teachers, pastor hyphen teachers. The context of this description of the gifts that Christ has given to the church, the context is Paul's teaching of the unity of the church. And central to this unity is teaching. Sound doctrine is not the obstacle to unity, it is the very means of unity. We unite around sound doctrine. That's what Paul is pressing forward here in this context. Right after he speaks about these gifts that he has given in verse 11, notice what we go on to read He gave them for what purpose? These various ones, including the pastor teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And in addition to the unity that's described here, we're all in Christ and we grow up in him. Sound teaching, it, it, it leads to maturity. We grow up in him. We become mature. We're not like little children that are easily going this way and that with different opinions and different ideas that they're exposed to. And in addition to unity, therefore, sound teaching, it leads to maturity. It protects the body from susceptibility to error, to be blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine. It imparts discernment so that your senses are exercised to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5.14 says. It builds character, this teaching. And it is one of the main, if not the main thing, that God uses to mold the character of each member in the church and the body of the church as a whole. And molding that church into the image of Christ, how does it take place? What is being described here? It's through these pastor teachers that teach, instruct out of the word of God. And one of the primary duties, therefore, of the pastor is that of teaching. Often this task is very unglamorous. The faithful pastor, he's going to want to show the congregation why a certain passage means this, and it doesn't mean that. And I've heard of people that, you know, liberals especially, they say, why should your sermons be, you talk about the context and the grammar and, and all of these things, and, and what does that have to do with any of us? And, of course, there, there, this just this undermines the authority of the Word of God, because It means this and not that because of what the Spirit inspired in that text. So a faithful pastor wants to show the congregation why it means this. And he will painstakingly therefore explain the meaning of the text. He will look at its context, examine the grammar sometimes, open up its practical applications. 
He must take great care that he not use the text just to support his hobby horse. He goes and looks for text, that his, his thing he wants to pound away every Sunday. And he's inserting his own ideas, therefore, into the text. He's not to open up the Bible that way. He needs to seek to discover not his ideas being validated in the Bible, but rather the ideas the Holy Spirit inspired in the text. Now, many preachers, they use texts of Scripture like magicians, and they pull a rabbit out of the hat, so to speak. And it's something that nobody, that you, you know what it is, if the rabbit is pulled out of a hat, then nobody saw that rabbit before. How did that rabbit appear? And so it's this way, some people, this way, they listen to the sermon. Wow, I could have never seen that in that text. It's like a magical hat. The rabbit that's just pulled out of that text. I never would have seen it. I'm amazed. That's not to be the way of biblical teachers. Well, it's also the task of the teacher to make the word of God plain. The teacher that wants his hearers to be understand, he's going to seek to stress the main point of the text. He's going to use plain words. And he will try to fasten the word of the minds of his hearers. And therefore, that's why we use illustrations. Jesus used stories. And we want these illustrations to be as like Velcro, so the truth will stick to the minds of, of the people that we hear. He seeks to apply God's word to the consciences also of his hearers. And this is the way the pastor-teacher exercises the God-given task of governing the church. That's why these two things must go together, governing and teaching. They go hand in hand. And therefore, the pastor, as he rules in the church by teaching, he does, he does what God says in this. And this is how the Holy Spirit rules in the church. This is how Christ governed his disciples. He governed them by teaching. And this is the main duty in many respects of pastors, teaching the people of God the word of God. But in our day, such teaching has declined considerably in the church. And instead, the typical pastor is continually on a treadmill of never-ending commitments which take him away from the kind of study that faithful teaching requires. There was a well-known Bible teacher, M.R. DeHaan, who is the founder of the Radio Bible Class, co-editor of the da Our Daily Bread. Perhaps some of you, they still publish that, I think, a little devotional book. And... M.R. DeHaan, he, he died in 1965, but his work was taken over by his son, Richard DeHaan. And he writes in his little book, Men Sent from God, and he gives us an example of what a lot of pastors or some pastors have to put up with. Some time ago, I read an article, he said, in which the pastor of a church described his activities during a certain day, supposedly typical of his usual routine. It went something like this, arriving at the church office at 8 o'clock in the morning, he had intended to spend at least two hours in preparation for a Sunday sermon, a noonday talk at a local service club, and five radio talks during the coming week. However, he was reminded by his secretary that he had agreed to write an article for the church bulletin, scheduled to go to press at noon. He was also obligated to make three phone calls, one of them to the chairman of the church finance committee. After finishing with these duties, only 30 minutes were left for the preparation of the messages. Since 10 o'clock, he was to meet at the, the program committee of the ministerial association. And just as he began to study again, he received the word that the mother of the president of one of the women's societies of the church had passed away, and his presence was wanted at their home at once. This, of course, caused him to miss his meeting with the ministerial, but he was able to attend the 1230 luncheon of the women's auxiliary. 
And following this, he spoke at a study class, and at 2 o'clock, he officiated at a wedding ceremony, and at 3 o'clock, he began his visitation in the city hospitals, and he finished just in time to make the men's supper where he gave the invocation. And the supper lasted until 7.30, allowing the pastor to get away just in time to attend a meeting of the Every Member Canvas Committee. And he was on hand to make his suggestions and to boost the committee's morale. And having done all that, his day of service was fully ended, and he arrived home exhausted at 9.30 that evening. Well, I guess I'm just not famous enough to ever have, imagine me having a day like that, having so many people having all these duties that they're pressing upon me. And I'm glad that we live in it. We're ministering in a context where you have a better understanding of what our responsibilities are than that. But this account, it prompts us to ask, was this man fulfilling his duty to teach the church? I think not. He was meeting everybody else's expectations that were contrary to that basic rule or that basic task of teaching. Was it right for everybody to expect this and that of the man, keeping him from the study that was required to teach God's word? And such teaching, it'll require hard work. In his book, Pastoral Theology, the 19th century preacher and author, Thomas Murphy, he observes that there are two places where, unseen by the world, the pastor receives strength and he receives his equipment for the momentous task to which he's called. The closet is one place and the study is the other. By the closet, he's referring to the time the pastor reads God's word and prays. He's reading it not for a sermon, but just to have God's word soak his own soul. So the closet is one place where he has to spend time. But then there's also the second place where he spends a great deal of time. He spends it in his study. And again, it's away from the eyes of man. And all of it's to furnish his mind and to train his powers to do the work for which he's been called. Here, Murphy says, is the beaten oil is to be prepared that will send forth a sweet savor in the courts of the Lord. And so in the study, the pastor, he needs to devote himself to broad preparation. There are times in which he needs to read things that are not directly related to the coming sermon. And also there needs to be study of the scriptures, obviously, in preparation for the specific labors of the Lord's Day. And all of this will require careful study. Close and laborious study, it must be the great business of a pastor's life. This is not incidental to his work. These things are the great business of his labors. This is what is emphasized so much. They are pastor teachers in the New Testament. And to a large extent, his effectiveness in the ministry is going to depend upon how replenished he is in the word and by his mind and his heart being refurnished again by study. And those that skimp on all of this, they find that they will be enfeebled as they seek to convey the meaning of God's word to God's people. Without the arduous work of the study, the pastor might make sermons, but increasingly it's going to be sounding like all of his other sermons. The preacher who studies hard, he nourishes his mind, though, and his sermons are fresh, therefore. They're interesting. As Dr. Murray puts, Murphy puts it, it is impossible for any preacher to keep up that variety which is necessary in order to interest a congregation unless he is perpetually gathering together stores of thought and contriving how to present them so as to attract attention. Christ in him crucified is the great theme of preaching and must be the burden of every sermon. 
to present this one subject two or three times a week and that year after year without tiresome sameness is the great difficulty to which every conscientious minister must feel. This one grand, all-absorbing truth may be presented in 10,000 aspects, each of which will be new and each thrillingly interesting. It is a variety that can never be exhausted. But of course, that variety, it won't be discovered without work, without digging in the scriptures, without study. It comes as a result of diligent labor. If, if the pastor doesn't give himself to this kind of labor, his sermons are going to sound like they're all the same. There's the same thoughts, the same scripture quotes, the same illustrations, the same stories. He's told them three times. He forgot that he told them. And he has the same applications. And he, again and again, it's the same. And when this begins to happen, it's no wonder the people don't, they, their interest is not maintained. With the kind of study, therefore, that I'm talking about, it requires arduous labor. And those that hold this sacred office, they need to settle it in their minds that they won't serve God with something that didn't cost them anything. You remember how David, when, he, when the plague was sent to the land, God told him, after he numbered the people, to erect an altar on the threshing floor of Arana. And he went to that man's threshing floor, and that man offered him to donate the threshing floor, to donate oxen for the sacrifice. But David said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. And likewise, for the pastor to offer to the Lord a sermon that cost him very little is unworthy of the majesty of the Lord God. And it's, likely, likewise, it's an affront to the congregation that hears such a sermon that didn't cost him anything. And it's especially the temptation of certain preachers that have a natural gift for extemporaneous preaching. They can preach on the fly. They can easily preach for long periods of their sermons without having to look back at their notes. They've got tremendous memories, and, and, and they're just, they have a special gift for that. And often it's the case of such ones that they're tempted, you see, to, to, to slack off in their diligence in sermon preparations. And sometimes... It will be necessary for a preacher to have to preach something with less op- uh, preparation. Maybe there were hospital visits or maybe his own wife needed attention or whatever the case might be. But that's not the norm. The norm is that he is going to give himself with diligence that his people might profit from his teaching and from his preaching. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved by God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Urges Timothy, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. This is not something that's a sideline with him. This is his main duty. Give your attention to these things, Paul says, and give yourself entirely to this that everybody might see how you are growing as a preacher. All of this is relevant to us as well as a congregation as we seek the mind of the Lord about a pastor. It's relevant with respect to also the continued expectations of the people of their pastors. The pastor has other duties, obviously, besides study. And there might be extraordinary pressures that pull a man away from 
time that he might spend otherwise in preparation for the Lord's Day. Um, there are, for instance, when I was very early on in the ministry, there was a man that was very much against me. And there was a fire in his house. And I felt very much like it was my duty to try to reach out to this guy to spend some time for several weeks helping him to rebuild his house after his fire. But that was an extraordinary situation. I couldn't just say, well, look, the Lord helped me with less preparation. I, I think I, just, I can do that again. I don't need to work hard next Sunday. I could have thought that way, but, but I can't. And so it's good for pastors to do their other responsibilities, have one-on-one time with people. But I would caution you against unrealistic expectations. Like that man that I read that illustration of who went to all these committees and all these meetings and the like. I also caution you to, 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 to not think of the, that your pastor is your plumber, your electrician, your carpenter. And he's just always supposed to come over and do these things for you. This is not the thing that's been assigned to you. There might be extraordinary times when something like that's done. But you mustn't suppose that he could just run around doing everything that, they, except for preparing to teach and then expect that his teaching is going to be fresh and powerful. So remember these things as you think about pastors, upcoming pastors, and even your expectations of your current pastors. And I might just say as I seek to bring this to a close, that we need as we go over these pictures of a pastor, what he's to be. Remember also, though, this is a cautionary note, that every pastor has some strong areas and some weak areas. And it would be the temptation as we go through these different pictures to think, well, we've got to have a pastor that's the best of all these, all these areas, in every single area. Well, this is why there's a plurality of elders. They can balance one another out. And there are some that... God uses them in proper ways, but in some ways that they were somewhat deficient. Um, And that doesn't mean they weren't biblically qualified. Think of Jonathan Edwards, for instance. He was uh, famous as a preacher, as a philosopher, as a theologian, greatly used in the conversion of multitudes. And yet he didn't have the kind of one-on-one type of rapport with a lot of the people in his congregation. And so when the controversy came up later on, He was not quite as equipped to win their hearts in what ought to be done. And it had to do with the whole halfway covenant, and I won't go into all of that. But it's an example of somebody that was a God-ordained pastor and needed to correct in some area of his life, but it wasn't mean that he was disqualified altogether from being what he ought to be, or from being an elder at all. Well, as we consider the word pictures that describe pastors all of us as pastors we're going to feel like we don't measure up you don't have any idea how hard it is for me to preach these sermons because every time I feel like you know I just need to quit I just need to have some other people that are you know Lord bring on some young people that are going to just take over and, uh, and, and I just, just fall short and all of us I think we're going to feel that way it's like I said to you before. It's like pastors preaching about prayer. Everybody gets convicted about that. Who, who prays as, as like he wants, wants to? And so I would warn you against being unrealistic, imagining that in every way a teacher is going to be the best teacher you ever heard, and yet he's going to be the same warm, jovial type of a guy, the people person, the best person like that that you've ever, ever known. Timothy had his weaknesses. Paul says to Timothy about Timothy when he writes to the Corinthians, see that he is among you at ease. Obviously, he was somebody that, that the area of, of, of 
personal relationships were more difficult for him than perhaps teaching. And so as we relate these things that I preached to you about this afternoon, remember these cautions that you not go overboard in the scripture and seeking to apply them to our situation either now or down the road. But having said all of this, it's right that we pray for pastors that as we have stressed this afternoon, they're going to be faithful governors over a province, so to speak, giving account to the king. And they will be like teachers with a class of learners, diligently studying the scriptures and digging out that which God would have for his people Sunday by Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us the perfect model of all these things in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incomparable teaching that he gave to his disciples, the way he reigned in their hearts through the word that he communicated to them. And we do thank you for the example that he set before us as a Lord over them in a way that no pastor can ever be Lord in the church, and yet one that won their hearts and was an example to them in all that he said to them. And again, we would pray that as pastors, we would be like our Savior in this regard. We pray that, that pastors in this church for generations to come would not be lords over the congregation and yet not be afraid of, of implementing those things that are not very popular but are found in your word. Help, O oh Lord, for we are weak. We are prey to be carried about by this trend and that trend. Help us, Lord, not to be followers after fads, but followers rather after our Savior and after that which is set before us in the word of God. We pray for direction in the near future and also down the road. Bless us with this direction and this help by the power and the grace of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.